0: Welcome to another episode of Conduct Detrimental. I am Dan Lush, joined this week by Stephanie Weisenberger and Taryn Sharma. What's up, gang? What's up, gang?
1: What's up, gang?
0: We got a lot of feedback on our Brian Flores interview, and, you know, it, it's a heavy topic, and it's been a conversation that really everyone is having, and not just sports fans, not just on social media, but just people, right? It's a conversation that in order to really understand the full landscape, it's it requires you to just think you know, more than just think like a lawyer. You have to think of this from a human perspective. You know, from a diversity standpoint. You need to hear different voices. So, Taryn, Steph, you guys missed the last episode. Obviously, you guys come with different perspectives. to This, so we wanted to obviously get your thoughts on it as well. And in the last 48 hours, I think maybe some of my takes on the lawsuit have slightly changed. But yeah, I thought it was a, a good time for us to get all together, plus talk about the Washington Commanders. That is the new team name. We'll get into that, and then. Steph, I saw your tweets today. You were live tweeting the Washington, the sexual harassment committee hearings. Yeah. I mean, love to hear that. I mean, okay. I guess I'll open it up to the floor. Taryn, Steph, thoughts on uh, Brian Flores?
2: Yeah, Dan, we were lucky enough to write for Joe Pompliano's Huddle Up newsletter this week about everything that people needed to know about the lawsuit. It's a huge, huge story. And and it feels like the NFL is being attacked on, on multiple angles. And We've seen it before, but not necessarily in, like, such high-powered allegations. And I'm interested to see if this is going to lead to any sort of change. We've seen the NFL kind of wriggle out of these situations in the past. I mean, I think that the race norming is probably the worst thing that they've done, and such an explicit example of bias. And they've pretty much taken no heat for that. So if they manage to get out of this, I I think it'll be a a real— Houdini kind of act I think somebody is going to have to answer for these things and it's good that people aren't letting the NFL just kind of treat them however they want to
1: yeah no I totally agree with with that especially the not letting the NFL treat them the way that they that's most convenient for them honestly I think that regardless I know the last episode you guys were talking a lot about whether the NFL was going to be granted a motion to dismiss as that would probably be the next thing to come up and you know i i do have to say like i don't think whether there's a motion to dismiss or not whether the nfl legally gets rid of this lawsuit i don't think it's going away i think that you know brian flores has kind of started a movement that needed to happen you know you have Hugh jackson coming out saying that he experienced similarly and there are also reports where there are people who can corroborate Brian Flores's claims, especially the $100,000 from Stephen Flores for him to tank the Dolphins. And, you know, to be honest, I was telling Taryn, you know, earlier that Stephen Ross came out with this statement yesterday, finally, and he essentially denied the allegations, said they were false and defamatory. And I just read the statement and I just sat there and I was like, honestly, this statement does nothing for me. The way that the NFL handled Dan Snyder as ownership, I don't think the NFL is gonna handle this properly. And I think that Stephen Ross isn't going to be held accountable. And Brian Flores' claims also, you know, in what world would he make these claims?
0: A couple things, which which is important for the Hugh Jackson crowd that maybe is not familiar with him. Taryn, you can you can fact check me on this. I think Hugh Jackson might be the losingest coach of all time in terms of He's winning. one 1-31, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, 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 I, no, that's what it is. I can't imagine
0: that anyone has a worse record than that. I, I'm going to go on. Uh, I'm going to do some speculation here. But I can't imagine someone has gone zero and more than that. I, I heard a couple people. So I guess, you know, here's, here's where we are 48 hours after the lawsuit. Hugh Jackson has come forward with his own claim that Jimmy Haslam, owner of the Browns, had made some type of offer. What that number is, I'm not sure we know about, but a similar claim that Flores said. So there's part of me that says, okay, I like that Flores has some backup here. He's got, you know, someone else making these claims. But then I'm like, it's Hugh Jackson, right? Hugh Jackson is a guy that maybe even kept his job for too long, right? Re- regardless of You know, anything else, if a guy goes one in 31, can't really be crying if he doesn't have a job anymore. So I think, you know, we're just trying to call it like I see it. You know, Hugh Jackson has spoke out. I I think that's, uh, I would be surprised if he didn't join the class action. Imagine uh, if that certification does come. Marvin Lewis, someone that we did not talk about, a very successful African-American coach with the Cincinnati Bengals, made the playoffs a couple times during the Andy Dalton era. He spoke out and he said that the NFL has a history of running sham interviews so you're starting to get some people pop up here. And then Stephanie, you mentioned, you know, with respect that Stephen Ross allegation that $100,000 was offered to pay Flores to lose games. I guess there's some type of unnamed witness that spoke with an individual at NFL.com. I think it's the reporter's name is Stephen Wolf. So I, I posted online. I'm not really that surprised that Flores has evidence to back up that claim. I think it would be weird if he doesn't. Yeah, I do find it Shocking. Maybe that's putting it lightly that NFL.com, the defendant in the lawsuit is the one that's promoting that. So bold strategy by uh, the reporter over there for NFL.com to post that. Uh, as they say, bold strategy, cotton. Yeah, I don't know, so I guess, I guess that's the update. The, the only other thing I wanted to add, then I'll, I'll kick it back to you guys. We didn't stress this enough, and uh, I'll give a shout out to a friend of the show, Derek Maltzby, he's a sports lawyer uh, over in Pittsburgh. I approached this, you know, I think initially when I was telling you guys, I kind of rethought some stuff. I approached this like a lawyer. I don't see a strategic legal reason, and I'll just be very blunt, To file this, you know, like before you have finished interviewing with the uh, Houston Texans and the New Orleans Saints. And as the reports now are coming out, it looks like Brian Flores had an interview with the Saints the day the lawsuit became public. The sports fan in me says, I probably would have waited to make the lawsuit public until I saw how those lawsuits, until I saw the uh, position shook out, you know, because maybe, right, if I'm, I'm the agent for Brian Flores, I'd say, you know, let's weigh all your options here. Let's see if you get the Saints job, maybe you don't want to file this lawsuit. Maybe the Saints are a really desirable job. Maybe the Houston Texans, you want to, you know, rebuild a franchise from the ground up. Maybe that's something you want. Or alternatively, let's say Brian, you're so incensed by what happened with this giant situation that you want to file the lawsuit no matter what. You still want to do it. I would then say, if you don't get the Texans job, you don't get the Saints job, all of a sudden your legal claim I think is even stronger. I can make the argument, right? If I'm the Giants, the reason that you didn't get our the job, you know, unfortunately, you know, Mr. Flores, we just liked you know Brian Dayball more than you. It had nothing to do with the color of your skin. We just felt he was a more qualified candidate. And if you read the Giants statement, the Giants says that we considered you know Flores until the 11th hour, which to me is like, okay, that was Flores seemed to be their backup candidate. And I read all the news, you know, and I'm a Giants fan, I'm also a Bills fan, you know, so I was following Dayball's story closely. He was a really highly contested coach. There's this saying, you know, when you have a candidate that you really like who's really in, in high demand, you don't want to let them leave the building, right? Because if they go interview for somebody else, they might like that job or they might like it more, or someone might make someone an offer that you can't refuse. So I, I guess before I go down that that path, I understand now, you know, 48 hours later, why you filed the lawsuit on Monday. Because it puts you in this weird, precarious position. It's like, what are the Houston Texans supposed to do now, right? The gun, uh, you know, so to speak is on, you know, the Texans, they're on the hot seat, the saints on the hot seat, you know, if they hire floors or don't hire floors, they're going to win the, you know, win the headlines
2: again, right. This lawsuit. So I think a brilliant move on that front. I Can mean, I just ask if, one question about that, Dan? So, he is technically suing those teams. They're unnamed, but he is, there's 29 other teams that he's suing, right? And both the Texans and Saints are amongst those. If he gets hired by one of those teams, do you think he like drops them from the suit or how does that work? No, I, I mean,
0: he might or he might, I don't think he would. I mean, there's been lawsuits in, in the country, right? We've studied some of them where an active employee can sue their employer. And then, you know, it, that's certainly possible. It's just the... The optics are interesting. You know, my thoughts are kind of all over the place. I know we wanted to record today because there was so much here. We want to get to the Washington stuff. I guess I'll leave with this, right? I really think from a strategic perspective, they're putting a lot of pressure from a media standpoint, you know, on the Texans and the Saints and whatnot. From a legal perspective, if the case is just the Giants, I think Flores has a hard time showing that the reason that he wasn't picked for the job was some type of discriminatory purpose, right? Like this whole concept of we don't want to let Dayball leave the building. I just was talking to a colleague of mine, the guy I mentioned, friend of the show, Derek Maltzby. Like, obviously, the lawsuit is filed when it's filed to send a message that, that Brian Flores doesn't necessarily care if he's coaching again. He wants to send that message. And I think Derek, who, you know, him and I spoke offline, it's a, it's a very important message. But the, the problem is where the lawsuit stands today, I think the Giants can say, even assuming the Bill Belichick text is true, that, you know, they did have an agreement with Dayball. What they could say is, well, we gave it to Dayball ahead of time, we, we, we kind of put him in a position that we were gonna make him an offer and we, we were ready to go. We kind of had to, because we didn't want Dayball to go to Jacksonville or whatever other jobs he was going to and maybe get those jobs. So yes, we, we actually, and this is not what the Giants you know, have any said, I'm just pointing out like they could have a non-discriminatory purpose for leaving Flores. They're like, hey, we're putting all of our chips in the Dayball basket, but if this guy screws us and goes to another team at the 11th hour, Flores, you're the backup, you're ready to go. And we have to keep this interview in the books. It has nothing to do with the fact that you also happen to be a person of color. You happen to be our number two coaching candidate. So it's just a coincidence. But the reason we left your interview on the calendar wasn't because we were checking the box. It's because we were still considering you because we didn't know what was going to happen with Ball. So, you know, I, I honestly, you know, I've been thinking about this. I was up very late last night and because I'm an insane person thinking about this lawsuit. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's, I don't want to make light of this, but it, I don't think that Brian Flores' case is a rock solid airtight case. I think the case will be won and lost with the other plaintiffs that join this lawsuit, someone that might have a better cause of action, maybe a Marvin Lewis, Jim Caldwell. But I I can't get past in my head that Brian Flores, as it stands today, before he doesn't get these Texans jobs, same job. I don't think his case is like airtight is is I guess my, my larger point
2: here. He did say that there are 40 or so other people that can add to these like similar claims, these global sort of claims.
1: Yeah, I mean, Dan, I do have to say I respectfully disagree in part.
2: You can disagree in full. That's okay. I
1: I disagree in part. You know, I, I agree that the case is not airtight just on the face of the complaint. But, you know, I do have to say that from the outside and what maybe if this whoever the judge is that the case got assigned to has been hearing about the NFL in the news lately that, you know, they might get Flores through to discovery, because these are pretty harsh allegations. And you know, like you were saying, like he might not have any claims from just this bill Belichick and it might be word for word, but there might be emails out there of, you know, people in executive management, emailing back and forth saying, okay, scheduled this interview with Flores. He checks the box for Rooney rule. Like, and that's You think that. there
0: would be an email like that?
1: To be honest, I don't think the executive management of some of these teams are as smart as they think they are.
0: I mean, so I'm not, I'm Steph, I don't disagree with you. Like, I guess the platform like that I keep trying to pitch to people is like, we don't know whether or not Flores is going to win the case because we haven't been able to peek behind the veil, you know, behind the curtain and see what emails are out there and whatnot. So no one can tell you whether or not Is going to win or lose. But I think on this, on substance, on optics, the Bill Belichick text for me doesn't doesn't say that that's a colorable case, right? I don't think that the Giants necessarily alone a colorable case. Same with the uh, the Denver Broncos showing up late to a meeting. I don't know if that's necessarily, you know, going to do it for me to get you over that barrier. But Steph, as you point out, the NFL's longtime track record, the statistics, right? The one out of 32 NFL head coaches, the six out of 32 general managers, the zero out of 32 NFL owners. I think that's going to, it's probably going to get you over the hump. So if you ask me to predict, I think you get into discovery. Yeah. I just think the Giants, Broncos. You know, Broncos kept the receipts here in their statement. They said that that was not true. That that Elway uh, showed up to the meeting on time. That they weren't an hour late. So I just don't think that Brian Flores, at least as a, as we know today, as an airtight case that there's going to be no viable defenses that the Giants are going to have. Broncos. Notice I haven't said the Dolphins yet. Uh, I don't. <laughs> I, I think the Dolphins are in a, in a world of trouble. Taryn, let me let me ask you this before we move over to the the commander stuff. What are you hearing in terms of potential federal investigation, potential crimes? This whole Stephen Ross element, I think, has kind of been going understated, and and I I have a feeling uh, we're going to start hearing more on that front.
2: I'm very interested that, like you mentioned, NFL.com is the one that reported that the unnamed source had heard this offer being made to Flores. And Flores ties this to how he ended up falling out of favor in Miami. He says that because he refused to uh, meet with that quarterback because he refused to tank these games, that that is what gave him this branding as being difficult to work with. And so the fact that the NFL in their media arm is reporting this, I think that that's really interesting and maybe signals that they're willing to sacrifice Ross to, uh, to beat the rest of the case. And maybe they pin all of this on Ross.
0: I wanted to at least, Wallach had this tweet, he's not here to to explain it, but 18 USC code 224 is a federal crime. It's called bribery in sporting contests, an actual federal crime on the books. You guys know, if you're listening to this, what's being alleged here, right? That Stephen Ross, the owner of the team, basically offered $100,000 to Brian Flores to lose games. And then Hugh Jackson is saying something similar, at least the way that the statute's written. And I know Wallach thinks that there's a question as to whether or not this applies with the interstate commerce element. But, you know, if you read the statute, there's a reading of it that says the second the offer is made independent of any acceptance uh, that a crime has occurred. So, Steph, I know we're going to talk about it on a sexual harassment level. Right. Congress is taking an interest. Baseball took an interest in the steroid investigation. If there is any whiff that this is true, I would completely expect football at large, not just Washington, to be under the guise of, uh, of Congress.
1: I completely agree. And I know that our uh, friend in the show, AJ Perez at Front Office Sports, put out a tweet yesterday too about the Blackhawks NHL. And I guess there was some sort of heated exchange yesterday where
2: it's Rocky Wurz. Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, like you were saying, it, it might, this might be permeating. Not only the NFL, but the NHL also, and who knows, maybe the NBA. We haven't heard anything about that yet.
0: I got one thing that's very important to put in here, so people don't think this is a one-sided podcast. You know, obviously, I think we all, we all can say that if Brian Flores is putting a good spotlight on the NFL, right, win or lose his lawsuit, I think it's going to enact some type of good change. But I read all the replies on Twitter. Trust me, I, I told you I, I am a psychopath. I do read them. But I want to get a sense of what people say, good or bad. Even what the trolls say occasionally. So, someone had a really good point, and I think it's worth at least addressing here. Karen Steph, I'll put you on the spot. Brian Flores brings this allegation about Stephen Ross. He puts it in a, in a legal document. You know, that maybe there's Stephen Ross, if you read his statement, he's like, oh, I'm going to go after this, I'm going to defend this, right? So, maybe he's hinting at potential defamation or whatnot. My question, and I'm not sure the Twitter user that mentioned this, this happened in 2019, right? That was tanked for Tua. 2020, they had a good year. The Dolphins played well, and then 2021, this past year, also had a good year. Why is it taking three years for that allegation to come out? If Brian Flores is this beacon of hope and Mister Integrity, ah, you know, maybe you should have told someone about this. You know, in the last three years, I I think that's a totally fair criticism. Same goes for Hugh Jackson. Hugh Jackson hasn't been in the league for a couple of years. Oh, by the way, yeah, Jimmy Haslam, he did it. He offered to do it to me too. So you know, there's a doctrine of like, I don't don't know if it applies here, but you know, I I like to throw out the fancy legal terms, like unclean hands, right? Why do we not know about this? Why has it taken this long? Why does it take a racial discrimination lawsuit to bring up something that has nothing to do with race, right? The throwing in the financial incentives to lose games. So I think it was a good point. I'm not going to, I don't think the person was a Twitter troll, but they pointed it out pretty aggressively. You know, I cleaned up their language, but I think it's overall a solid point. Guys, What do you think? How how can Flores defend that if it comes up at a deposition? I'm I'm sure it will.
2: These jobs are very hard to get. And he's alleging that it's difficult, especially somebody with his background, to get one of these jobs. So consider the fact that he's from the defensive side and he's a black man. He's saying that it's difficult for me to get these jobs because of the issues in the process of hiring. So if I throw away this opportunity, then what else do I have? The thing is that because I was a moral person and I refused to break the rules. That's why they're punishing me and that's why I fell out of favor. And so I think it's a fine allegation to make. Like you said, it's a little bit unrelated. It just simply beefs up that he is alleging wrongdoing on behalf of the ownership.
1: I agree with what you said. Definitely. I think that, you know, I'll just pose the question back to you, Dan. If you in 2019, let's say you were Brian Flores. You were, you know, your season was going well and you're at the top of the league and, you know, you're getting looks all over the place. Would you have in 2019 immediately after this happened, would you have come out and said something against the owner of the team that employs you? Or would you have kind of, you know, waited and said, okay, this isn't a big deal. You know, I made the personal decision that I'm not going to get involved in it. But, you know, like you were saying, Taryn, I have a steady job. Would you have come out and said something? Because I think there's also that aspect where you'll see in the Washington football team investigation, too, is that it takes one person to have the bravery and courage to come out against these big, powerful people. And I think almost like Brian Flores was the one that finally said enough is enough. And so now Hugh Jackson is like, okay, yeah. Let
0: me hop on that too. Okay, both great points, both of you. And uh, I I will say this, maybe for Brian Flores, that makes sense, right? He couldn't say anything about his current owner, Steph. I I will agree. I think if I'm in Brian Flores' role, I can't say that. I don't think Hugh Jackson can say that, right? Hugh Jackson hasn't been in football for years. Like what what was his incentive? I'm pretty sure
2: no one's knocking on Hugh Jackson's door to be an NFL head coach with that one. He clearly clearly took the money. If if Haslam was offering him to lose, like he made a lot of money on that. I was on a show today and the host said,
0: he might be the richest NFL coach in the history of all time if he took drive. So then I saw this i saw this really funny meme, Taryn, which I, I i know you saw too. It was like, you know what? I think it's, um, what's the movie? The Millers with Jennifer Aniston? Yeah, we're, we're the, the Millers. We're the Millers. Yeah. So like it's all, at the, it's a, the movie plot is basically that they're all paid to pose as this family. So Sudeikis is like, I was paid a million dollars or whatever. They're just like, spoiler alert, they're like this family that's smuggling drugs across the border. So like Sudeikis is like, I was paid a million dollars. Jennifer Anson's like, what? I was paid $500,000. And the son's like, wait, you guys were paid something? So like, I'll credit part of my take. I think it was so funny. I guess as we we wrap this up, we'll obviously keep a close eye on it. The next step that's going to come here is probably one of two things. I think it's going to be other plaintiffs joining the class action. That's certainly going to happen in the next couple of days. People speaking out positively, negatively. And then the other thing that we need to, you know, pay very close attention to Again, I don't want to make light of this. The Houston Texans, all reports, and I spoke. Uh, I've spoken to people in Houston. He was the front runner for that job. So now, if he doesn't get the job, and it's a less desirable job than the New York Giants' job, you know, there's no other big names that are necessarily out there. I think that the optics will be really poor. But
2: I just have one question: You're saying that other people might join the class. What is that process like? Is Flores' legal team out there like recruiting other people that might be similarly situated in order to join the class or are are they not allowed to communicate with those people? How does it work?
0: Yeah, essentially, yes and no. You know, when you file a lawsuit like this and you go and you perform media on CBS and ESPN, like that's you recruiting people to the class action, right? That's that's essentially the gist of it. Steph, anything to add on class cert? And then we, we should close this because I, I want to get to the commander stuff.
1: Yeah, I do want to make one point. Not saying that the NFL is even open to settling, but, you know, there is a world where it happens often. The court obviously encourages settlements. And so there is a world where, you know, the barrier to be certified as a class is a little bit lower and a little bit more lenient if the class is certified for what they say, certified only for settlement purposes. So usually you have to have a settlement agreement in place and then, you know, for literally just settlement purposes the class could be certified and usually usually the court is pretty lenient about that because obviously they encourage that so it also could be an option. Not saying the NFL is going to settle, but you know, it might be in their best interest too. With all of the PR nightmares that they have been getting lately,
0: let's put that in the books. Obviously, our next episode, I'm sure we'll have another Brian Flores update. So if you're tuning in just for that, uh, obviously our next episode will touch upon it. Okay. Second topic: Washington Commanders. We have talked about this a lot on the podcast. We've talked about it a lot on social media. What I thought was so funny, and you guys are both Washington fans, uh, obviously from from a certain perspective. You know, the the funny thing with Team President Jason Wright. You know, you can't really fault the guy he said a couple months ago he went on the pat mcafee show and he said there's going to be a lot of misdirection when it comes to the name. so i think we all kind of got excited right like cleveland guardians those guys messed up the name terribly we're not going to get into the whole saga again and washington i don't know they have two years to come up with this name so like if they have this really elaborate like scavenger hunt i don't know what they have in mind misdirection that sounds really cool so We've talked about it on the, on the show before, but there was um, somebody registered the website, WashingtonCommanders.com, about 30 minutes before the official press release. So people thought that was a clue. Maybe not. And then a little more uh, Easter eggs kind of come out. They announced this video like, hey, we're changing the name. It's in early January. And then like a unblurred video comes out that just shows that the jersey said Washington Commanders. And people are like, nah, it's Photoshop. They're doing it on purpose. It's going to be a zag. And then you know, commanders.com, you know, we've been following this gets transferred to an NFL entity. That's the hosting, you know, host uh, domains for a number of teams, I think 26 out of 32. And people are like, ah, misdirection. It wouldn't be this obvious. And then Joe Theismann, right? Former Washington Redskins, great quarterback. He goes on a show the day before the announcement, he goes, I think commanders is a great name. And I think it's got great military imagery. So people are like, okay, we're so excited. They're going to throw us off the scent. This is amazing. And then, you know, Tara and I, you guys both saw this helicopter goes up the night before the stadium and it zooms in on the merch stadium, the merch stand, and it's like commander's like, okay, this is gonna be the best misdirection of all time. We're so excited. What is this name gonna be? And woman the name guys, Washington <laughs> Commander's like. Where was the misdirection? That was, it just seemed like clues that led us toward the goal, and then we figured it out a month ago. And mind you, I'm, I'm very mind- mindful that I was the one that said it was going to be Washington Admirals like a month ago, um, you know, the, the, fun, uh, the fun little quidditch story. But, you know, the, this, these guys missed out on a lot here. Taryn Steph, I think this might be the last time we could tell the story. Martin McCauley, your guy, Taryn, do you think he deserves a shout out here? We pour one out for him, or do we, do we put him in the Hall of Fame here?
2: Yeah, he belongs
0: in the hall of something. He... You want to give a brief brief background on Macaulay for the people that that might not know? What
2: would you call him? Like a trademark squatter? Like oh, somebody... whoa, Taron squatter. He's a yeah. trademark applicant. He's a registrant. He's registering yeah. names here. He registers a lot of names. Yes, it's an interesting process that he's involved in, and uh, I think he registered a lot of the names that possibly could have come up and whatever the reason is Washington decided that they were going to go with the name that almost nobody wanted and so that's how we ended up with commanders but yeah I, I think Martin McCauley is, is an interesting guy and may have forced the football team the Redskins hand
0: you know we don't want to take it for so long I know you guys Karen and Seth you guys got together to talk about the Washington football team investigation today I think we can pour one out for Mr. McCauley or I'm going to put him in the Hall of Fame the guy registered like Washington Monuments, Washington Presidents, Washington Justice, all of which I think are better names than the commanders. So if you're a Washington football fan, which I know both of you grew up at, as, at least, you might be a little angry at Mr. McCauley today because I, I think this trademark, this random actuary from Virginia, who is not on sports law Raiders at all, he's just some random dude, spent like a couple thousand in filing fees just to troll an NFL franchise. And I think successfully, nobody is shouting commanders. Washington Justice is a pretty cool name. I think if if that had been the name, like, I mean, that might be the official sports law uh, team of the NFL, Washington Justice. That's a pretty sweet name. Okay, Steph, again, we saw you live tweeting this the whole day. Uh, I know, Taryn, you you and Steph got together to talk about the congressional hearings today uh, that were done live. So I guess let's take it to your interview.
2: All right, Steph. So the Washington football team, formerly the Redskins, has a new name, finally, the Washington Commanders. Steph, I know that you've been following this roundtable with the House Oversight Committee very closely. Can you tell us how long that's been in the works and sort of what they've been talking about so far today, big picture, and then we can hone in on some of the specifics?
1: Yeah, so I think we talked about it before on some of our prior episodes, but back in November, House Oversight Committee essentially called on the NFL and said, look, this is clearly an issue if this many people are wondering where this report is. Clearly there are intense allegations being made and you guys conducted a, an investigation that was really only an oral report, which I just still baffles me to this day. Why would you hire such a prominent you know, law firm, Beth Wilkinson's firm, and not release a written report, but you can release a 250 page report on PSIs of footballs, which is just insane to me. And some of the women who spoke at the hearing today actually brought that up. But so the House Oversight Committee called on the NFL in November. The NFL apparently has not been very cooperative. Representative Carolyn Maloney was kind of leading the meeting this morning. And she essentially came out and said, yeah, we've been trying to get this report we've been trying to get a hold of these 650,000 emails these documents from the nfl and they've essentially just been making up excuses avoiding it finger pointing house of oversight committee has not gotten anything from them yet and so i think they've kind of were like okay clearly someone needs to hold the nfl accountable you can't have this billion dollar organization who we'll get into this later, but who is receiving these antitrust exemptions. You know, they're just signed this billion dollar media rights deal. You can't have such a big organization with such a large presence in the country just getting away with these prominent issues. And so, you know, she really called out on them. And one of the first things that she said, which really was kind of shocking, was she called on the NFL for essentially saying that They did not want to release the report because they thought that it was going to be damaging. And she said, this is the beginning, not the end of holding the rich and powerful accountable and protecting women across America from workplace sexual harassment. And she kind of just queued up the six witnesses that were going to speak, including one gentleman, Brad Baker, who actually was one of the two males asked by I believe it was Larry Michaels, to produce that video for Snyder. And, you know, it was a very interesting discussion. Lots of heated moments, including between some of the representatives. All in all, I mean, something needs to change. Yeah. As you
2: mentioned, Larry Michael is the former voice of the of the Redskins and has since gone into a, a retirement that, you know, wasn't really necessarily held accountable for these actions that we know that he engaged in as a result of testimony by multiple people. You mentioned some of the people that spoke today at this roundtable, and you also mentioned the, the November episode where you and Dan spoke with uh, Megan Imbert and Ana Nunez. Were either of them involved in today's hearings, and who else was speaking?
1: Yeah, so Ana Nunez actually was involved, and like you said, we had interviewed her and Megan Imbert back in November. Anna Nunez worked for the Washington football team. I can't even say commanders yet. because It just doesn't sound right. But she worked from 2015 to 2019, and she experienced some serious sexual harassment there. And so some of the other witnesses that also appeared, we had Melanie Coburn. She was a cheerleader for a little while, and then she moved into the marketing department. She was there for 14 years. And then we also had... Brad Baker, who was there from 2007 to 2009. He was in the video production department. Anna Nunez, as I just said. And then we also had this Angelson, who was there for, I want to say, four or five years. I could be missing the mark on that one. But Emily Applegate was one of the other ones who I'm sure you've seen in the Washington Post. She was one of the ones that really first came out and has been quite outspoken in it. And it was an interesting discussion.
2: Yeah, what was the uh, the most explosive thing that you think we heard today in this roundtable?
1: I do have to say, you know, the thing that really strikes me was the words that all of these women used to describe how they felt when they were experiencing these sexual harassment, all of this workplace misconduct. And, One of them actually said, Melanie Coburn said that she described it as these women were just being used as sex objects and tools to increase sales rather than dignified human beings. And she said executives at the Washington football team treated women like a collection of toys. She recounted an incident where she had gone on a business trip with herself and one of the other cheerleaders, and they stayed at where Dan Snyder and a few of the other executives were staying. And she said that it was like a frat party run by a billionaire who knew no boundaries. There were prostitutes upstairs, tons of drinking, including, you know, hazing, pressuring a recovering addicts to drink. And, you know, they also kind of attacked Goodell a lot too. And I have to respect that because I don't think that while we obviously know that the Washington football team isn't being held accountable, I really don't think anyone has called out Roger Goodell as harshly as they should be. You know, he's the commissioner of the NFL. He's the one with the power that everyone is talking about. He's the one with the power to make a change. And Melanie Coburn said, you know, Goodell's claim that he's not releasing this report to protect women is cowardly because all of them want the report to be released because they want the team to be held accountable and they want this to, you know, inspire change in not only the sports context, but all across the country in terms of workplace environments. You know, it's not something that should be around. And you know, these women shouldn't have to learn how to say no. That was one of the points that Tiffany Johnson had mentioned in her uh, statement. She had been at the Washington football team for eight years. She was a cheerleader and then worked in the marketing department. And she expressed that, you know, she had to start blocking her experiences just to avoid dealing with the trauma of this boys locker room culture that started at the top with Dan Snyder. She was told she should wear low cut blouses. And she was actually one of the ones that just came out and said that Dan Snyder made a sexual advance on her. And I think this might be one of the only real hard allegations that actually was corroborated by a male employee where she was at a dinner, a business meeting, and sitting next to Daniel Snyder, and he just reached over, placed his hand on her upper thigh, and one of the representatives asked Tiffany Johnson, well, how do you know it was intentional? And Tiffany Johnson said the only way that he was going to remove his hand from my thigh was because i had to physically push him off of me and even after that they were walking outside getting ready to leave and dan snyder approached her and started pushing her toward his limo with her his hand on her lower back trying to get her to go into his limo with her But, you know, luckily, Dan Snyder's attorney actually walked over and looked at Dan Snyder and said, Dan, this is a very, very bad idea. And Tiffany took that opportunity to walk away. But it was it was really striking and unfortunate and just I don't know. I was kind of speechless at the fact that the thing that she kept saying was she never thought that she was going to have to learn how to say no. She had to learn how to say no to sexual harassment. She had to learn how to say no to the owner of a football team who's trying to make a sexual advance on her. And, you know, hearing these things from the women really put things into perspective that I really, truly do not know how the NFL and Roger Goodell are going to last after this, because there's zero shot that they should.
2: Whether they should and whether they will, I think, are are different conversations. And we can Talk more about that, um, but I, I just want to be exceedingly clear for anybody listening to this. So Dan Snyder, the owner of the team, was directly involved in the culture of sexual harassment and was perpetrating it himself. Is that right?
1: Yep, uh, and th- that's literally exactly what one of the representative asked them.
2: So the consequences of those actions, which you know these people spoke to Beth Wilkinson. During the, uh, the creation of this report, the consequences were that Snyder's wife was put in charge of the organization, that they got rid of the cheerleading team, that they were fined some paltry amount. Is that right? There were no direct consequences on Snyder's ownership, right?
1: Yep, exactly. I mean, one of them actually pointed out that while the investigation into the misconduct and sexual harassment, hard workplace culture... Was going on was when Dan Snyder and his wife became 100% sole owners of the team, and the NFL let that happen as there were these serious allegations against Dan Snyder. It, it's it's just everything doesn't make sense in that sense. And
2: that's right. So the actually it should be pointed out that the owners waived the debt limits that they ordinarily stipulate to allow Snyder to buy out his minority owners who he had been engaged in a legal battle with for a while. So they really had Dan Snyder's back, wouldn't you say?
1: If I were them, it could have been a strategic move on their part to get out because they knew that what was going on in the organization was not okay. And I think that, that definitely brings up a good point, too, is that Melanie Coburn was there for 14 years. So she was there before Dan Snyder came into ownership. And one of the representatives specifically asked her, you know, was there a change that you saw from when you were there before Dan Snyder arrived and after Dan Snyder arrived? And she essentially said, absolutely. Before it was a family oriented team, everyone was super close. It was a great environment to be in. And the second that Dan Snyder came in, it went from that family-oriented fun environment to a business sex sells culture that demeaned women as a tool for raising money. Because, you know, as we know, based on Dan Snyder's past, uh, suing, essentially suing a 75-year-old woman for not using her season tickets, that's all he cares about. And so, you know, that kind of also struck me as, okay, so here's someone who's seen both sides of it before he came in and after. And the second he stepped in, he started getting involved in every single minimal detail. And it really changed the way that the Washington football team is now.
2: I also want to go back to one thing that you brought up. Some of these women spent extended periods working for Washington's organization. Did they talk at all about why they didn't leave, why they didn't seek some sort of uh, legal support beforehand?
1: That was one of the questions that was asked of them. And a few of the women responded. And the general sentiment was, when all of these instances were happening, they were 23, 24, 25 young women just starting in what they described. And I can relate as what's supposed to be one of the most exciting moments of your young career. You know, you're getting to work for a big professional football team, like what is not to like, like that is, that used to be my dream before I, you know, decided to go to law school, but sports is always there. And you think that you're walking into something that is going to change your career for the better and going to change your life for the better. And they walked in and one of them, Emily Applegate called it the most miserable experience of her life working there. And they kind of said, you know, looking back, we wish we would have done something, but when you're in that and you're young, just starting out, you fear that if you go speak to someone, you're gonna be retaliated against because they tried. They tried telling, you know, higher management what happened to them. And, you know, one of them actually even told her boss Ms. Angelson did, she told her boss what had happened because she had interesting experiences too. Her boss was making comments about her appearance daily, giving her unwanted kisses on the cheek, asking what special gifts he expected of her, telling her that over email. And so she told her boss and the boss called her harasser on the phone when her boss said, you know, this needs to stop. You can't be treating Someone like this, the harasser apparently screamed through the phone, excuse my language, what the fuck is she thinking? Essentially, what the fuck is she thinking for speaking out because it just wasn't a thing. You couldn't go to higher management because they said there really wasn't an HR department. And, you know, it, it's just something where when you are surrounded by it, you know, at, at all times daily, You kind of just try and sweep it under the rug and you hope that it's going to stop at some point, but at the same time, it's your career. And as there are these young women, they need to pay their rent. They need to pay their groceries. Emily Applegate mentioned that as one of the reasons it was like, she was going to lose her job if she spoke out and, you know, it shouldn't have to come to making a decision of whether you stay with a steady job but you're faced with sexual harassment every single day versus you can quit your job, but then you might not be able to pay your rent. It shouldn't have to come to that.
2: Like you've mentioned before chasing your dream. Also, they shouldn't be forced to choose whether they can chase their dream or uh, have a safe work environment. Let's close on this Steph. What are your key takeaways from today and where do the, the various parties, the NFL, Snyder, these women, and Congress, where do they go from here? What are the next steps and what can we expect to see in the next, say, few months?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it was kind of interesting. There were a few representatives who didn't really understand the depth of the allegations and didn't understand the fact that this was bigger than just the NFL. This is bigger than just Washington football team. This is something that goes on in Almost every single workplace, but no one really talks about it, even though it does permeate the workplaces all across the country. And so a few representatives of Congress essentially said, you know, asked good questions like, what do you wish you could have done back then? Is there something, if you couldn't go to law enforcement because you were afraid you were going to lose your job, what do you wish there was? And so, you know, there were options of, okay, maybe we'll establish some sort of committee or something to address that where women can come together or also one of them brought up that you know the NFL has these antitrust exemptions they were granted these they have they reap large benefits from you know not having to pay certain taxes on certain things because of all of the laws there and so one of them asked you know what do you think if the NFL doesn't change this then do you think maybe we should try and remove those benefits. If the NFL can't treat women like real people, why should they be reaping the benefits of, you know, congressional power who actually has power over the whole country and like, and so the women essentially were just asking Congress to hold the NFL accountable because I think they realized that such a large organization that really expands all across the country everyone knows what the nfl is everyone knows but everyone loves sports and so sports are supposed to bring people together and right now it's there's this cloud over the nfl at least right now where you know people are very unhappy with the way that they're handling things and emily applegate literally called on roger goodell to resign said you know The first thing that needs to happen if we're going to be holding the nfl accountable is we need to hold roger goodell accountable because this isn't the first time he's messed up he's messed up in the past on domestic violence issues social justice issues and he's not equipped to run a billion dollar entity when he's employing all different types of people men women all different races you know he he clearly has proven that he cannot run the NFL adequately. And so she called on him and Congress was essentially saying that they're going to stay in touch with these women and they're going to work with them to try and hold them accountable. And hopefully they're at least hoping that the NFL after this will see that, you know, they can't run anymore. Everything is kind of out in the open now and they should be cooperating. And so over the next, few months, I think they're kind of just going to be discussing what, what they can and cannot do and trying to get the NFL to really come out and, you know, they need to be held accountable essentially is, is what the woman wanted. And there needs to be change, not only in professional sports industry, but also in workplaces across the country.
2: We'll put a pin in it for now, Steph, Uh, that was incredibly thorough and Really appreciate your dedication to this story.
1: Yeah, thank you. It's an, it's an important one, so I'm glad that we have the platform to cover it.
2: Okay, Steph, Taryn, that was
0: excellent. Steph, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold you to the prediction that this causes Roger Goodell to lose his job, and I'm not saying you're right or you're wrong. It's certainly a bold prediction. And uh, you know, if this is really as bad as you know the optics are, that you know this is kind of uh, rampant, and maybe this is going on under Goodell's nose. Certainly, it's on the table. I I would take odds at that Steph. You know, I'm a I'm a betting individual. By the way, shout out to us for nailing the uh, Rafa Nadal bet over here. Um, I think we deserve a, a pat on the back for that ten to one odds bet. So if you did hit that, I know a couple of you DM'd us. I don't know if you want to throw us throw some shekels. That's fine. I'm just no I have to. Okay, Steph, turn. You guys said a lot. Anything that you wanted to add before we uh you know move move uh move towards this episode being closed out?
1: Yeah, I do have one more point just to make it very clear. You know. If we're gonna be throwing uh, Snyder on the bus a little bit more and calling him out. He apparently, one of the representatives actually asked this question and said, Snyder said he was unaware of all of these allegations until they surfaced in the media. That was one of his statements when all of these allegations first started coming out. And the representative asked Miss Johnson and said true or false. And Ms. Johnston said false. He was involved in every detail of every single day. At the office. Yeah. So, I mean, essentially, the women are also saying everything that Snyder has said in the media about this is false. So, that just needs to go out there, too. is He has been involved in the organization. He is a control freak about managing the organization. I think everyone from Washington knows that. And so, you know, it, it's time for people to hold him accountable.
0: I think uh, that'll about put this episode on books. A reminder to everyone this podcast is sponsored by Themis Bar Review, the top bar prep company. Uh, in the galaxy. We are actually the top sports law podcast in the galaxy. So it is only natural that Themis and and that's never would find each other because like, I mean, I I can't even think of, right, any other uh, platforms in the galaxy that can say that, right, that they're just the top in their particular field of the galaxy. But well, lo and behold, we found each other. Uh, New York sports law soccer negotiation competition is on February 11th, right before Super Bowl weekend. We have 20 teams that signed up. We have some international teams. And I know we have some listeners that signed up. So to the extent that you are competing in it or you want to judge it and you're a practicing lawyer, we do have a couple of spots open. I'm super excited to do that. Steph launched Misconduct, had a video go viral uh, last week. So that was pretty cool. Steph had 40,000 views on a video. So um, you can check out Misconduct. That's at Sports Law on TikTok to see which video that was. And uh, Taryn, newsletter, we just hit a thousand subscribers. So all, all is good in the world of conduct detrimental.
2: It's a well-oiled machine, Dan. I will take it. This is a podcast
0: that uh well turned from a podcast to a website, and now it's just kind of a thing that exists out there. And when sports law stories happen, people think of us. A uh, friend of the show, Joe Pompliano. We were featured in his newsletter, which is great. I don't know, things are going well. Um, as, as you you guys both know. So that'll do it for this week. Um, I'm Dan Lust that's sports law lust, the show at Con Detrimental, Taren at TK Sharma Law, Steph. At S Weissenberger underscore. And we will see you next time on another episode of Conic Detrimental.